All right, good afternoon. I don't believe I need to preach now. Uh, everything that I needed to say has been said this weekend, so it'd be, it'd be good for us just to go through some attendance and some announcements and eat. Anyway, it's a privilege to be able to bring the Word of the Lord to you today. Um, as we began to have this conversation about this possible conference a year ago, uh, maybe, I think it's been about that. I mean, we've been talking about the topic for a while. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that we will see. Um, that there was so much more. I think when we got the list together, Jason got a list, I had a list, James and Scott, we had a list of things that we wanted to cover. And um, it, it, we could have had 30 plenary sessions. We could have had, you know, 30 hours of teaching and still not gotten it. And here's, and here's the reality of it. This stuff ought to be being taught in the pulpits of the churches of our world. The truth of Christ and the gospel of grace needs to be the meat and the potatoes, the foundation of the meal that the body of Christ to get. And when it's not there, what happens? Well, let me just say this, that Jesus will say in John 10, or he says in John 10, I'm not there yet, I'm teaching John on Sunday mornings, so I always will say, I'm telling the church, you know, Jesus says in John 10, that the sheep, His sheep, those who are His, the elect, the church, the body, those who are redeemed, His children, the adopted ones, the sanctified ones, the redeemed ones, the, those who have heard and the, the evangel, and, and, and so on and so forth, hear His voice. And when they hear it, they come and they feast upon it. So if we call ourselves, if I as a pastor say that I am in Christ and sanctified and set apart with Him before the Father and also called by Him and, 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 and equipped through the Spirit and the Word of life, I'm going to break that thing. Uh, what, where, what am I doing if I am not hearing the words of Christ? How do you know a man of God? As we like to be called, oh, the man of God, you know. How do you know a man of God or a pastor, teacher, theologian, whatever, is truly of God is that he preaches the truth of Christ. Sola Scriptura, if we could dare borrow the idea of our forefathers. It wasn't their idea anyway. It was God's. Through the Word of God only does God speak. It is not through any other means. It doesn't matter what we may see in semblance through allegory, metaphor, or analogy. It must point us back to the truth of Christ. For the Word of God is Jesus who came to the earth, who is God, whose voice we hear, whose Word we know is truth. Not about Canada, but the truth of who God is. God has revealed Himself to us and through us, through the prophets, through the apostles who all speak of Christ. Moses spoke of the prophet that was to come. And as the Pharisees inquired of John the Baptist, are you the prophet? I'm not the Christ. See, he understood what Moses was speaking of. Jesus would say in John 5 that it is not I who will indict you, the Son of Man, though all who are in the grave, John 4 Hear the word of the Son, hears the voice of the Son of Man and will be raised from the grave unto eternal righteousness and life and some unto eternal condemnation and wrath and judgment. 
But all will hear the voice of the Son of Man. I am God, the living God, who is the eternal Son. And my word is true. And I say that which the one who sent me is saying. And I do that which God the Father was working. Now I am working. And so forth. And Jesus Christ is the head of His body. That He will gather, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12. That celestial gathering. That celebration. And Jesus Christ, who is the living word, gives life to all peoples of the world, all people groups of the world, because God loves not just the ethnic Jew who were no people to begin with, but were snatched out of the paganism of the Chaldeans, or living in the temple of the ziggurat, worshipping the reflection of a rock in the sky. And God regenerated Abram and sent him on his way. And Abram was a faithless, faithless servant. He went and for 13 years he disobeyed God over and over and over again. And for continually, his, his wife loved, you know what, you know what I, I've been thinking? I can't have children, but Hagar, man, she's, she's of the right age and stature. And Abram gave her no argument. He just said, fine, fine with me. And then Ishmael was born, not the son of the promise. And then that 13th year of when Ishmael was born after the promise of God to Abraham for Christ, the one that would come, the living word of God, what happens? Abraham is circumcised the same day as his son. A sign and the seal of the covenant of God to what? Circumcise a people for himself in their hearts by his grace, by his spirit. By His truth, giving repentance, that our minds would be made new, that our lives would be complete in Christ. This is the essence of the gospel. We spoke often yesterday throughout the sessions and and I just asserted, as all the brothers have, sanctification is righteousness, is the gospel. All these words and the elements of things to say that, 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 that as, as Paul would say, that the body is all part of the body. With the elements and the intricacies of the good news of Christ and His work and the work of God to redeem His people, they're all part of the same gospel. It, they don't work apart from each other, as God is immutable and in His essence all there in His simplicity, so is the work of God in the same way as it displays the attributes of who He is. I have been called in the last few years antinomian. And recently, as I get, you know, I, I was in Romans on Wednesday. I'm reading through Romans. I'm doing a large pas- passages of exposition of Romans on midweek and then John's Gospel on Sunday morning, and as I get to the area where the gospel of grace is strong, and these in, indicatives, these things that are declarative, people go, oh, you're antinomian. And then when I get to this principles of the imperative, now because we are who we are in Christ, because Christ is who He is in the Father, and the Spirit does the work of God in His people who are His body, and when they gather, we use the erroneous, fallacious word church, which means institution, by the way, not ecclesia, should be translated gathering, not church, but our language is messed up anyway. Because we are, then these things are so 
so much to be strived for and longed for and loved. This is what we do. And that's what I want to talk to you today. The, but what I'm saying is when I talk about these things, the, the, these people who love the gospel, they come and say, you're being legalistic. <laughs> you're being legalistic. I've been accused of that even recently in the last month. You're, you're be, that's a little legalistic, pastor. That's a little legalistic. And legalistic was Romans 6. <laughs> Should we sin that grace may abound? We just keep on doing it. It should not be. It cannot be. It must not be. It is not so, Paul says. You know, yeah, that sounds legalistic. It sounds like me as a dad. No! You're not doing it. You know. And my children, as they've grown and as they've moved in some of them into adulthood, and well, I can do it if I want to. I forbid it. Watch me, you know. Watch me. I'm a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I'm a pastor. A lot of people can preach. A lot of people can teach. I do preach and I do teach, but I'm a pastor. Everything I do every day, every ounce of energy that I have when it's being divided amongst family and husbandry and fatherhood and counselor and all these things, there's one thing that drives every fiber of my soul and it is the un tenable call and, and pull and the lure of God the Holy Spirit to continue to peep, to continue to reach into the lives of people and mold them and teach them that they may know the joy of Christ. Shepherding. I have animals and I have children. Sometimes I wonder if there's a difference. But, you know, <laughs> every day you have to feed them. Every day you have to bathe them. Every day you have to corral them. And I'm talking about the children. <laughs> If you get them to clean up after themselves, I have a dog that's cleaner than some of my children. You know, you know, he at least goes off to the edge of the property to do his business. My children will eat and leave it, you know, in their beds, which they're not supposed to eat in. It's my bed. <laughs> it's my house. I'm old enough to leave. And, <laughs> you know, I'm joking. But we care for them. We do what's necessary. Sometimes at the cost of ourselves, at the cost of our time, at the cost of our bodies, we do what we need to do for those who are under our care. And just as Paul, as an apostle, not a pastor, though he had a pastor's heart, Paul as an apostle, he had a care for the sheep of Christ. He had a care for the body of Christ because the love that God had for him in Christ and the love that Christ had for him compelled him to love with all the affection of Christ, as Paul would say to the Thessalonians, the sheep of Christ. There is no getting around what God has called me to do. I am a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I'm an overseer. And so I watch constantly. I pray constantly. I am always considering how my own personal life must be watched and cared for. And that's why I'm one of many pastors in our fellowship because there cannot be just one of me for I am failed at the root. So there must be others to hold us together and Everything that I am is by the grace and mercy of God so that I can think of how His mercy can be fed into the lives of the people who claim, who He's claimed as His own. It's important to understand this church. We gather here today so we are the church of Christ. And not all of us are of the same local body, but we are all of the body of Christ. But the teaching of the New Testament is absolutely 100% at all times in every way written to the local bodies 
of the regions where they were. Written to them, but by the mercy and power of God for us, you see. To them and their local assemblies, but then also for us and our local assemblies. And as sad as it may be, and I wish I could just and make men ready for ministry and then do like this and have money to support them so that they can go into the far reaches of this world and plant assemblies and shepherd them intimately. That's what's going to make the difference here with this message of the gospel. We're not teaching something new. We are teaching something old and we are doing that by the Authority of Christ Himself, God Himself speaking through us mere men who deserve all the wrath and the vengeance of God's righteousness. But in His mercy, He poured it all out on Christ that we might be His righteousness in Christ. See, That's what you've learned today. That's what you've learned yesterday. That's what you will continue to learn as the sheep of Christ. For it is the Word of God. It's where I started. It is the voice of our shepherd. It is what we know. And it's what we hunger for. It's what we long for. But, beloved, it is not just so that God's given this to pastors in their hearts so that they may feed the sheep of Christ. It is so that you are fed that you may then also feed others. So this message is not on the shoulders of a few men who are the shepherds of the church at large in other regions of the world. It is also as much responsibility of each of you as brothers and sisters, as arms and legs and ears and eyeballs and toenails of the body. It is your responsibility also to continue this word. Uh, let the word of God be in your heart and in your mind and proclaim it in the context of your life. As you go, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What is it that Christ has commanded? That we believe in Him. Alone. Alone. The legalistic charge and the antinomian charge and... Let me tell you where it comes from. And I'm trying, I'm going to be kind. I'm not going to speak of anyone. But it comes out of fear that is rooted in ignorance. And if it not be for the mercy of God, that ignorance is rooted in unbelief. Unregenerate hearts who have a scholarly aptitude to see context on page and exegete and hermeneutically express what is being written through the syntax of the language that God has given. Much like someone could take a, an article about neurosurgery and study it and expressly dive into the nuances of it, but never have laid a hand to a scalpel, never have laid a hand to a brain and never would. <laughs> Lest that body become deceased. And in the same way, ill-equipped people would not do surgery, ill-equipped men should not teach Christ. And we who are the sheep of Christ that sit under the shepherds, the, the under shepherds of Christ, we are no more different than you. However, we have been given a role and an authority, just like I am the father in my home and not the mother, and I'm not very motherly. But every now and then, you know, my four-year-old, she'll say, Daddy, you're being sweet like Mommy. I'll growl at her. She'll growl back. That's what we do. She's a velociraptor some days. But I'm a father. And it's the role that I've been given. It's the role that I've been given by God in my biology, in my makeup, in my role, because of the path that God laid for me to 
be married and have children. It's not something that I said, oh, I just think I'll be a father today. It just doesn't work that way. I am because it is who God's called me to be, but I'm no more important than my wife as mother. I'm no more important than my children as subordinates, for I'm training them to be father and then mother, 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 mother. (laughs) But we care for them. And they are going to do the work that I do one day. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is a unified body. You can go there. I'll read it. I'm going to be in five or six passages today. I'm going to be in Ephesians. I'm going to refer to Galatians. I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to refer to... um, And then then we're going to land up in 1 Thessalonians. Ah, therefore, and I want to spend an hour getting us to that therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you, urge you, urge you. You see what that looks like? Son, I urge you to brush your teeth. Your breath is stinky. You see? I urge you to clean your room. It's a mess. I urge you to do well in school. I urge you. I urge you to be kind. I urge you. What does that mean? I'm pushing them toward that goal. I'm pushing them into the direction of that thing. I'm encouraging, exhorting, and admonishing. Admonishment, it comes with the very definition is the warning. This is what needs to be done because it's imperative. It's imperative. I urge you to walk, to live, to think, to act, to speak, to express yourself, to relate to one another, to worship, to do your job, to work for your boss, to drive your car, to watch your movies, to listen to your music, to put on your shoes, to pick out your clothes, everything. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy, Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which is what? To be set apart in Christ. You have been called to be set apart in Christ. You are no longer alive, beloved. You and I have been crucified with Christ and it is He that is alive in us. So when people see our lives in the spiritual sense, it is not we who live in our formalities of Christendom. It is not we who live with the expression of how we fall in our liturgy and how we speak in our vocabulary and how we behave in our in our precepts. It is Christ who lives in us. And the only evidence of that, as is being taught probably over by now, but yes, very over, being taught to my congregation this morning, the assurance of salvation, and you said it today, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, for He took the penalty of sin and He died because of it, and it was paid, and God's wrath is satisfied, God's justice is satisfied, and to prove that Jesus was not worthy to die a sinner's death in His own guilt, He was raised alive. And we have hope in that. And we've been called to that. And Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he gives us the trimmings. There's the plate, the call of Christ, the gospel of grace, the work of God that is yours. You are His. And no one will snatch you out of His hand, you see. But I want you to walk... In Christ. And we all know it's by faith. We can go to Paul teaching to Romans and we know that it's by faith. We're believing that we are and trusting that we are surely hearing the truth of Christ. And here's the beauty of it. It's not in even how much faith we can muster. Our hope is not even in our faith. Because our faith can wane, can it? Our hope is in the faithfulness of the work of Christ. 
But I want you to do this with all humility. What's humility? Not thinking too much of ourselves, not acting as though we are more important, and really being quiet instead of speaking so much. And there's a lot of things that go into humility. It's something very few of us have, but we express it. We are urged to do so. People say, oh, you're such a humble person. I'm like, you do not know me. <laughs> I act with humility. I walk with humility by the mercy of God. For if my flesh were to rise up and grab the trachea, <laughs> I wasn't talking about mine. I was talking about yours. <laughs> you see, I used to joke a lot because I'm a fighter. I, I, did, I did martial arts for 17 years and I'm a gun guy. I do, I do tactical things and I play chess and I teach chess and I do a lot of things. So anything to do with war and fighting, I enjoy. Uh, checkers? No, 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 no. There's no knight on checkers. And you say king and you can't tell who's a king except he's just tall. I don't want tall people. I want swords. So, so chess is my game. And I used to always joke, you know, that because it was my first impulse. And when I was 20 years old, um, I'd slap you in the throat. You get in my face, you come in there and bang a real big and bad, like we talk about in the South, you know. Get a little rednecky. It's the people used to think it was redneck because of the sun bearing down. No, it's redneck because we slap each other in the throat. <laughs> What'd you say to me? Pow! Just punch. And I used to joke like that. I don't do it anymore, but I used to joke about it. I said, man, that guy made me some mad. I'm going to punch him in the throat. And it's an embarrassing thing. It hurts real bad. It stops the conflict. They can't talk anymore. But they'll be okay in about three minutes. <laughs> You know, well, I used to joke about that. Well, that's not something to be joke about. Paul says, do not joke about things that are sinful. And somebody came to me years ago and said, you know, I think you need to, I think you need to stop making jokes about punching people in the throat because it's unbecoming of a man of God. I'm like, who are you talking about? Man of God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are you talking about? Okay, then I'll, then I'll, then I won't do that. That's humility. That's humility. My flesh is not humble. The spirit of God within me is. And by his mercy, through the exhortation of the Scripture, by the command of God through Paul, I will walk and strive and urge myself and urge you and you will urge me to strive to walk in humility. So the point I'm making here is that there is a clear command to the church. Because that we are in Christ, the indicative, there's an imperative in which we must demonstrate, listen to what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying, we must demonstrate ourselves as Christ's. We're not demonstrating that we are truly in Christ, are we? Christ does that. But we are urging to walk with humility, walk with gentleness, walk with patience. You understand the Decalogue, right? You know the Ten Commandments is not ten things that we ought to be doing and not doing. It never has been. That was Israel's problem. They thought, well, I've done this. Oh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know, obey the law. And this homeboy's like, yeah, I've done that since I was a kid. What are you talking about? And I know he's punched his sister. <laughs> rich young ruler. He was a snob in the beginning. I mean, he's rich and he was a ruler. I mean, you know, what, what in the world? He was, he was probably really arrogant with his dad. And his dad was like, I can't wait till he rules out. He, I mean, he moves out and he rules on his own. He didn't keep it. He didn't love the Lord. He didn't love each other. He didn't love the world. He loved himself. The Decalogue is just broken down into the two commandments that Christ gives His people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To do all that, everything you do, every breath you breathe, every sigh. Do you sigh? 
Have you ever sighed in joy? No, we don't sigh in joy. We sigh in frustration, anger, resentment, bitterness, impatience. Uh, you walk in, uh, you know, clean your room. And I walk in and go, oh, gosh. I'm coming, Daddy. They can hear it down the hall, downstairs, outside, across town. Daddy sighed. Sometimes I sigh just to get them to come. My daddy used to do that. He'd sigh. And, what is it, Dad? Just making sure you're on your toes. You know, that kind of, if I speak, you better listen. Uh, you know. And I'm like that. I want people to, I want my children to hear me when I speak. But my sighs are not godly. So even when I'm not talking, there's a lack of humility, there's a lack of gentleness, there's a lack of patience. When I breathe, my breathing is lacking these things. <laughs> so I can't say that I have progressed in my humility. Though I don't punch people in the throat anymore, though I don't get all excited, though I don't, I don't rip people apart with big vocabulary, make them feel stupid, and they go, you don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? Get away from me. I mean, you know. I don't call people morons anymore. I used to think that was funny. And I did an incredible teaching. It was an incredible teaching just because it was the Word of God. But there was an incredible teaching in, in the book of Revelation on specific aspects in 2008. And in the middle of it, I mean, I'm just so excited. It's a, it's a small venue and I've got a whiteboard and I'm just going and the guy that's recording it. And I just get... And, and then, you know, and, and those people, man, they're just morons. They think like this. They're just morons. They're idiots. They're fools. They're foolish people. And after a couple of weeks, he said, I can't use any of this. I can't... You say fool and moron and make fun of folks so bad, I'm not going to publish this for the sake of your own testimony. I'm like, man, I just didn't think about it. That's not humble. That's not gentle. That's not patient. That's not bearing with each other in love. So what's the point I'm making? We're commanded and urged to do these things, but none of us are doing these things, but we can put on the airs of these things. By the mercy of God, we can see how our flesh is constantly in the mode of not doing these things, but we can with our bodies and our relationship with the, with the law, as I was trying to say, and then I got sidetracked. You know, we love the Lord our God with everything, and we love each other as we love ourselves. That is the summation of the totality of the law of God given through Moses. And no human being but Jesus Christ the righteous has ever fulfilled those things. And because now He has fulfilled those things, we are law keepers in the eyes of our Father. So when I sigh, because McDonald's took a little too long to get my coffee... See how sinful that is? You see how the root of our flesh is always alive? But yet it says that we've been crucified. Because it's, it doesn't control us anymore. It doesn't reign in Romans over our lives any longer. It does not sit at the kingship of our person. Christ is that person. Christ is the king. His spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, sits and resides with us and, and dwells us and envelops us. So... Why do we do this? Why does it even matter that we have these things that we're commanded to do? Why does it matter? It matters for two reasons. Because when we let our flesh push us away from the gospel, what am I saying there? Am I saying we're losing? No, it has nothing to do with our place. But friends, our flesh pushes us away from the gospel. Our mind pushes us away from the gospel. What do I mean? We take our eyes off of it. We take our mind off of it. That's why the constant reminder of Paul to renew our minds on the truth. To have, Is this the way you have learned Christ? Are you meditating on these things? Are you focused on the truth of Christ? 
Are you learning the Word of God? This is why we do it. Because our relationship with God is never stained. It's never changed. But our intimacy can be changed. That's why Paul says we have an advocate. I mean, John, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We come to the place where we see our flesh and we go, wow. And we measure ourselves according to ourselves and we are wanting. Because a believer sees that he's always evil in his flesh. No believer, no one with the Spirit of God says, look how far I've come. No one. This teaching here, we are one body and we'll just keep on going there. And in verse 9, you see that parenthetical there by he ascended. And, 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 and in verse 11, let's get there and let me get on with what I'm teaching. And he, Christ, gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, in order to, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Are you being built up to the teaching of Scripture? Are you being equipped with the teaching of Scripture? If you are, you are also hearing. Walk gently. Be kind. Be patient. Forgive. But never do you see that actually being instructed as assurance. Because anyone who says they're humble is a liar. Anyone who says they're gentle is a liar. Anyone who says they love the Lord with all their heart is a liar. John says anyone who says they have no sin is a liar. Well, if I say I don't have that sin, then I'm a liar. If I say that there is a commandment on the Ten Commandments that I have actually got under control, I am a liar. <laughs> it's not there. It will not there. Now, I pray that you can't see it. And if you do, that's what we're here to talk about today. What happens when we do see sin? When we do see our flesh becoming extremely active as if it were ruling amongst the local church? What do we do? We call it in our vernacular church discipline. And by connotation, the idea of discipline comes to the place where most people say, oh, that's a bad thing. And I mean, as a southern boy that grew up in the south, I mean, you know, you looked at your mama wrong, she beat you till you stopped breathing, then called 911, well, there's no 911, then called the neighbor to resuscitate you. That's what they'll teach you to look at me wrong. No, you had a bug on your face. You talk about it to me, boy, beat you again. I mean, you know, did I ask you a question? Then shut up. That's not discipline. Discipline is not punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. I used that last night in the, in the forum. I talked about that in First John. But discipline in Hebrews, we see it all over the Scripture. Discipline is evidence <laughs> of sonship, of adoption. If I don't care about my children, I don't care what they do, as long as they don't get in my way, which is selfishness. I can shut them off and, and push them away from me in such a way that it doesn't matter. But discipline is always corrective. It teaches us. It helps us to learn. Because we are in Christ, therefore, these things can happen in your life. You can forgive. Well, how, how, how much? Because he did it again. Again, then. Seven times 70. And I, I have some literalists. That's only 490 times. So that 491st time, I'm kicking him out. Of my life. 
Well, if somebody's sinning against you so much that you can count 490 times, then you're sinning against them because you're violating the commands of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love holds no record of wrongs. 490 times. Forgiving somebody, they find out there's a piece of paper in your pocket. Look at all those tick marks. This is the 491st time I've seen you tick this mark. I'm, I'm out of your life too. See the absurdity of it? But what do we do? What do we do when sin run rampant, runs rampant in the local assembly? Because not only is it about our intimacy with God in our joy, in our worship, in the name of God, because we gather. We gather as the body. We call that the church in our vernacular. It's a wrong word, but we call it that anyway. And the people of the world look, look in and they say, oh, oh, there's the church of Jesus. And what's the number one thing that we hear often? In our world. Well, I don't want to be in church. Well, you know, I don't get upset about that anymore because I don't want people going to most so-called churches. I'd rather live in the Lord in unbelief, live in the world in unbelief, than live in a so-called evangelical cult in unbelief. With the devil's pulpit powering over people's lives and holding them to the standard that's imperfect. Why saying that they're perfect? Sounds just like Jesus' woes to the Pharisees, doesn't it? But what do we do? Jesus says through Paul in Ephesians, in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes, rather we speak as we're speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way. Which way? Every way. If you can think of it, we're to grow up in every way in Christ. We're to mature in Christ. We're to mortify our flesh in Christ. We're to vivify our faith in Christ. We're to live in this way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body who is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, we're important to each other, So when we live in sin, constantly dealing with the flesh, and we're never productive for the sake of the body of Christ, we are are robbing each other of the ministry that God has prepared for us. That's why, that's why, listen, that's why church discipline is necessary. So that the name of God is not defamed, and so that the body is not robbed of its needs. That's it. That's the only reason why it's necessary. Not because I've got some spiritual hair in my mouth or in my soup or up some other place. Because I don't like the way certain people act and I don't think it's godly. What is godly acting? Well, take everything Jesus did and was and said and thought and breathed from the zygote to the ascension. What's a zygote? A fertilized egg in Mary in the womb that he created with a body that he created for himself. Boom. Let's just stop thinking about that for a minute. What, is it, what does it mean to, 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 to walk perfectly? That's what it means to walk perfectly, to be Jesus, the Christ. None of us are, but we are in Christ. So we see this instruction. We see this instruction. No one is telling you that you can just hate one another. As a matter of fact, if you hate one another, what do we do? 
Because we love each other. We, we work that through to the end. And when someone is unforgiving and obstinate and ignorant and just frustrating and they refuse because of pride, does it make them any less a child of God? I beg to differ. They are not lost. Some people say, yeah, they're not a child of God because they're so mean. Just because you don't show your meanness doesn't mean that you're not equally as mean. See, we've forgotten the mark of sin. Satan never went and put his face in God, finger in God's face. You know that. That never happened. Well, he's, he's, he's barking up the wrong tree there. The Bible doesn't say that Satan said to God. The Bible says that Satan said in his heart, I will. Lucifer said in his heart, I'm going to rise up there and stand next to him. And I'm worthy to do it. And God threw him out of heaven. It wasn't a war. It wasn't a gang turf. It wasn't West Side Story. You know, for those of you who are old enough to know the story. This wasn't this long battle and all these angels stood up. He said in his heart he was worthy. And God cast him out of heaven. And equally and immediately with all the multitude of the heavenly host that agreed with him in their heart. <laughs> Why is Lucifer? Lucifer's great. He should. He should be. Although we're thinking it. So there is no measure in which we can find sinlessness in our life. In anything. And because of that, and because of the struggle that we see in Ephesians 6, because it is not against flesh and blood, it is against the principalities and the powers of this dark and present age, that Jesus says, that God says, that Paul says. I mean, when Paul writes, it's just Christ talking. It doesn't have to be a red letter to be the words of Jesus. He says there, in verse 10 of chapter 1, all things under the feet of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says that, and the church displays the wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly realms, Satan and his dominion. The church exists, ergo, Satan knows he's defeated. There are justified people who have been secured and sanctified in the work of God. And they exist, and we live, and we walk, and we strive and we fail. But we will never fall out of the hand of God. And Satan knows he is defeated. He is not deceived. He is not stupid. He knows he's done. And the work that he does in this world is by the will and the pleasure of God. Everything he does, every act of evil that he's permitted to do is not just permitted by God, but is ordained by God. Everything. And Satan does not bring any type of judgment that God has not sent him to bring. And even then it is temporal. For the judgment of God, Satan will be a participant. An object. Not a player. So we have this. And we see this writing in the New Testament. We understand we are sanctified. We, I could give you examples of murder. I could talk about all sorts of things. I could talk about examples of failure. Examples of self-righteousness, sanctification. I like the idea of the cup. I mean, you know, I talked about the donut yesterday. You know, we, 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 we have ways of illustrating these things. But dead works, you said, Brother James, are any work that seeks to establish righteousness outside of Christ. I think that's how you said it. And I would add to that that dead works are also inclusive of any work that seeks to establish or prove confidence that we are actually in the righteousness of Christ. 
So with all that being said, when we see these relational strifes and these intimate strifes that we have, we call sin in the life of the church, we correct them. Church discipline starts in a very easy way. The illustration of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus is so that the people who teach the Scripture are doing so for the sake of the sheep, that they can learn the Scripture, that they may also equip each other in the Scripture. So church discipline on the basic level starts with each other. Starts with the intimacy of our lives as the elect, as the chosen, as the redeemed. We interact together around the Word of God and we are equipped and we're, we're taught the Scripture. We're taught the Gospel. We're reminded of who we are. We know all of the things that are, that are necessary for us to be certain and have assurance of the grace of God and the confidence that we need that is in Christ. And that's all that we are supposed to be doing when we gather in this way, learning and gleaning, so that we now can, as we live life together, we can have enough of intimacy. I mean, just you know, Brother Jason, I'll use an example. He was tired last night and I could see in his demeanor. It's the first time I've ever met him yesterday in the flesh. But I could see that from the time he got here to the time we left, it looked like something was bothering him. So I reached out. Now, if that happens in just a few hours, how much more so should we be and have intuition and, and focus on the lives of each other as the body of Christ? And church discipline begins in the way that that would take place. Hey, brother, I saw that you, know, you, 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 you were angry today. I'm going to pray for you. In Christ, that anger doesn't rule you anymore. Be angry, but sin not in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You see? That's correction. That's discipline. And what happens? Oh, man. He didn't sin against me. He's mad at somebody else. He's mad at the McDonald's worker. We're going to just blame them all day. <laughs> mad at the guy in Cincinnati who can't drive and shouldn't have a license because his IQ is negative six. <laughs> you've said it. Don't lie. You know, you've thought it. <laughs> you know. Or the clerk at the airport. Never getting through the ticket thing. And they're about to close the gate and they're just not, you know, we get, all right, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about sin within the body, sin that we can see, sin that we might be suspicious of. And we're not spiritual police officers to run around and go, have you sinned today? Have you sinned today? Have you looked at anything ugly? Have you said anything nasty? Have you eaten anything fatty? I mean, you know. <laughs> no, let's get over this. As we relate to one another, we correct each other. Why? Because we care for one another. We want to know that each other are okay and that we're not subjecting ourselves or, or subrogating the, 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 the gospel for our own flesh. We're not looking to try to fix our problems in our flesh because that's sin and unbelief. And even in the church, even in the body. It's unbelief to think that we can do anything to equip ourselves in any way. Christ equips us through the teaching of the Scripture, and that is what equips us. And so when we see this, these examples, they start there in this small thing. And let's say that it is something grievous. Somebody does something to you. They, they cheat you on a deal, or, 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 or they say something ugly to you, or they assume on Facebook that you're being ugly. And, and, you, know, and you get back together, and they just don't want to speak to you. That's so childish, friends. John calls us little children for a reason. One, because he loves us so in Christ. But two, because we act like little children. That's why Paul says we need to grow up so that we're not like little children. That every time somebody disagrees with us, we're not frustrated. We have an opportunity to teach and to be taught. Because every time we correct someone else, we are also, at the same way the Bible says, being sure that we're also being corrected, even if it's not true for us. My daughter asked me just the other day, did I, was I a liar? Did I lie? 
I said, I have lied, but I don't make a practice of lying. I, I can't remember the last time I actually lied. Oh, so you don't lie? Yes, I do lie, but I don't lie. And I'm a liar, but I'm not lying now. <laughs> you know, and she's not quite old enough to get the, you know. So just a day later, one of my daughters, one of my older daughters came and said something to me. And I said, no, that's not what I said. She said, well, that's not what you said yesterday. And my four-year-old runs in the room and says, Daddy doesn't lie. He has, but he's not now. You know. What do we do? What do we do when we see people lie to us? We go to them. Matthew 18, I'm not going to teach through that. You know what it is. Why do we do these things? Because we care for each other. Is it easy? Yes, it actually is. The only reason it's not easy is because we buy the lie of the devil that it's going to cause more division. How can you cause more division than separation of intimacy around the gospel of grace? If we can't be intimate around Christ and all He's done for us, then what hope do we have? We can be, beloved, and we are in Christ. And so we work through these things. The power of the gospel is done and the efficacy of the gospel is secure. And now let's live it out by faith together as the church. We see the church of Ephesus and the instruction there and the teaching that we are to help each other. We see Corinth. Let's go to Corinth, right? The bad church. People say, oh, that's the bad church. It's not the worst church. You know the worst church? It's many churches. The region of Galatia. The region of Galatia had the true gospel. And then all of a sudden, somebody else came along and started trying to put burden on them of the flesh. Literally, in the flesh. It's bad stuff. And so with the play on words, Paul uses the word anathema, which is like, you want to cut the flesh, then you're cut off from Christ. And if you want to cut the flesh, you might as well be a man about it and cut it all off. And that's what Paul says. Paul's grammar in, 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 to the Galatians is, is mean. I mean, he's angry. It's not mean. He's authoritative by Christ. He's angry. He is, he is baffled that they are bewitched. They're the worst church. And when we see Paul's, I mean, we see John's apocalypse. We see the revelation. The word apocalypse means revealed. We see the things that are revealed to John. And we see Jesus writing a letter to the church of Ephesus. <laughs> a really good church. Timothy was the chief elder of that area. And what happened here is that we see a, um, a commendation. Jesus says, I, I commend you. you. You have the truth. You, you, are, you are zealous about fighting against error. You hold fast to the, to, the, to, the, to the absolute orthodoxy of what I've taught you and planted in you. Oh, you are such to be praised. <laughs> so sort of, can you imagine when they read that letter was read out? Of course, the elders of that church probably read it ahead of time. They're going, oh man, they, they're going to swell up real good. And then he says, but I have this one thing against you for a second, your first love. Why? They didn't have a love for people. So therefore, they didn't have a love for Christ. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus did not say, why are you messing with my people, man? He said, why are you messing with me? Because <laughs> we're the body. If somebody's banging on my foot with a hammer, my hand's going to have a problem with it. <laughs> And I'm going to punch him in the throat. <laughs> you know? See, it's so funny, isn't it? But it's unbecoming. So in this, we have Galatia. They had something adding to the gospel. They had to have it corrected. In Corinth, Paul says to throw the man out who's having sexual relations. He says, any brother 
Any brother in Christ who does these things and has sexual morality and won't stop when you ask him to do it, kick him out. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18 when you continue to try to get people to stop doing these things, kick them out of the assembly. What does that do? We're still brothers and sisters, but we're not hanging out with you until this is corrected. And it can be corrected because you are in Christ. Now, you may have temptation, but you're not going to act this way in front of me. You're not going to say that to my wife. You're not going to be abusive at home. You're not going to sell methamphetamines on the street. And those are all things that I've had to deal with in my ministry. This last two years, we've excommunicated two brothers in the church because of infidelity. And if things don't change, we will excommunicate several more people in November because of abandonment and irresponsibility to the body of Christ. They refuse to listen to the gospel. And people say, well, those are the troubled churches. And I know I'm out of time, but let me give you this example. Thessalonians was not a troubled church. It was not a troubled church at all, yet church discipline was practiced in Thessalonica. Paul says, and just listen, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of the faith and labor of love, and remembering before our God and Father uh, and this there, and the steadfast Remembering before our Godfather the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ that you have. You see that? That sounds pretty good. I want this letter for me and my fellowship. Don't you? For we know, brothers, who are loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word. You didn't just come in there and say, oh, it's nice. We appreciate you coming and telling us all these things. But it came in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you imitated us and of the Lord. And you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So all these things took place with this church of Thessalonica. And yet they continued to rejoice in the gospel of grace. Hold fast in the perfection of Christ that He is their righteousness. So it did produce some things in their life. The thief no longer stole. The adulterer was committed. The one who lied told the truth. And all these things took place. But, 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 but it wasn't perfect. And it surely wasn't lasting, was it? Where's the church of Thessalonica today? It doesn't exist. But you did all these things in the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now remember, it said you became an example. He didn't say you proved you were in Christ. That language does not exist in the Scripture. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. What has gone forth everywhere? What is the example? Your faith. They see this as transformation and they wonder what's happened and they go, oh, they believe in Christ. There's a faith in God. Let's go forward. So that you do not need to, we do not need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son that comes from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I'll close by reading this. Finally, brothers, I think this is chapter 4. He says what? We ask and urge you in the Lord that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. See, the Thessalonians were doing as Paul asked. 
And then Paul brings discipline to them, not, not because they were doing anything wrong, but because he wanted to continue them on the path of correction and establish in them the necessity of continuing in the faith, trusting fully in Christ, but also being careful to make note of who they were amongst themselves, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. <laughs> so you love each other, and it's so evident that the people up north are hearing about your love, you need to love better. You're so gentle and humble and patient and kind. Man, you're the example to all the churches around you. So much so that when our evangelism and our church planning efforts go into these areas, they're like, well, tell us what you did to the Thessalonians. And Paul said, it's not good enough. You've got to do more and more. You've got to do better than this. <laughs> you see, where does it end if this is our assurance? Where does it end if we've got to be perfect? Where does it end? It ends in death and hell is where it ends. That's where it ends. But where does it end when we walk by faith in Christ? It ends in the crown of life, who is Jesus Christ Himself. The crown of righteousness, who is the Son of the living God, with whom God is well pleased, with whom God loves, and with whom, to whom God has given the Spirit without measure. And then God, the Son, put the Spirit in you. So then, finally, brothers, we ask, don't do like the word the world does. You know what we told you, for this is the will of God, your being set apart. Is the will of God complete in us? Yes. The will of God is for you, church of Thessalonica, that you have been set apart in Christ. It is the will of God that you have been set apart for him. You've been set apart in Christ, Christ is our sanctification, you are sanctified fully. But as you live in this sanctified state, I ask that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you know how to control each of his own body in this holiness, in this being set apart in honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that see that no one transgresses or wrongs his brother, because, you know, the Lord brings judgment on those things, but not to you, for you are set apart. But why do we want to do that which God is going to judge? He's not going to judge His church. There's no condemnation for the church, but He is going to judge the world. So let's not do the things that the world does. It's going to be hard. It's going to be impossible not to see them from time to time. But church discipline fleshes this out. Friends, if we were antinomian, why would we excommunicate a brother? Why not celebrate the grace of God in his sin? Oh, man, I saw you cuss that waitress out the other day. Praise the Lord for His grace. Oh, my God. I'm going to put you in charge of a Sunday school class. You can teach other brothers to curse so that the grace of God may abound. How ridiculously absurd is that? It's not absurd. It's demonic. Just as demonic as those who hear the gospel of grace say, Yeah, but the spirit of the enemy lies to the heart of humanity. And when people hear the gospel of grace and don't stop there and rest in it, they have not been given ears to hear. May God have mercy on us, as He has. And may God have mercy on those who reject the gospel. We are the sanctification of God. We are the set-apart of God. Because Christ has finished the work. Let us work by His mercy to help each other Reflect that 
And never put confidence in the flesh. And never gauge yourself by what you see in your soul. But only by what God has promised that you are in Him. Which is sanctified. Let's pray. We love you, Father. Because you've loved us first. Lord, you've given us the stamina and the patience and the endurance to work to these things and talk about these things and teach these things. Lord, we have made some mistakes, I'm sure. We probably have some sound bites that are maybe could be more precise. We, we probably have, even in the flesh a little bit, gotten excited about the wrong thing. But Lord, your word is true and nothing will stop it. The gospel is true and nothing will quench it. May your truth go to the sheep that are yours before the foundation of the world, that you have given them to your son and he has satisfied your wrath and you will call them to faith. You will grant them repentance and they shall be called the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that everlasting grace, mercy, and it displays your glory to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.